Welcome to the future. You're listening to the Consensus Network. Consensus Network. Consensus Network. With Buck Joffrey. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with Consensus Network. Today, I'd like to start out by reminding you that there are some really useful tutorials on consensusnetwork.io for those of you who are starting to potentially get interested in buying some cryptocurrency for the first time and trading, etc. Some very basic stuff. Go to consensusnetwork.io. They're free tutorials. Uh, and in fact, if you sign up for a Coinbase account using the link, you and I will both get $10 of Bitcoin for free. So works out for us pretty nicely there. Also, make sure to sign up for the newsletter. Uh, we have lots of information going out every week um, and, you know, give you a chance not to miss any announcements about events, etc. So, again, that's consensusnetwork.io. And then one last thing I want to make sure that I keep saying to people is that I want your questions. I want this to be a show that is not just me talking, but us talking together. Send your uh, comments, questions, observations, whatever info at consensusnetwork.io or go to consensusnetwork.io and um, just, you know, write the question, whatever, or you can actually leave a voicemail, which would even be better for me. But anyway, let's get on with today's show. Now, listen, there is, um, you know, there's more to blockchain than Bitcoin. We know that. Uh, but there's also more to distributed ledgers than blockchain, right? We've talked about the uh, what distributed ledgers are. This is a whole concept behind what's so big about this. It's eliminating a central authority from being in the picture, right? Now, you don't have one, one ledger. You have information or um, uh, consensus over an entire ecosystem of computers around the world and that's the whole idea that's the beauty that is the distributed ledger model okay now blockchain uh, is often used as a interchangeably with distributed ledgers um, and I'm careful not to do that because frankly blockchain describes only one type of decentralized consensus mechanism and what does that mean it just means of course if you know, if you have one authority, right, a central authority, and it's the bank, you don't need to have consensus. The bank says, yeah, you know, the bank is keeping score. But in a distributed system, you have to have all of these computers in the ecosystem agreeing. And that's what consensus is. And that's why we are consensus network, by the way. So um, a blockchain, again, is only one type of decentralized consensus mechanism. Um, and although it's really the dominant system uh, in, in this new distributed world uh, right now, it's not the only one. And, uh, and again, I'm not downplaying the importance of it. Blockchain started everything. You know, bit, the Bitcoin blockchain started everything. You know, I'm no, I'm no computer scientist by any means. You know, I am uh, actually I'm a physician by training. If, I don't know if any of you know that, but I am. I'm a board certified head and neck surgeon. I haven't practiced in a few years uh, because I had some other interests I wanted to pursue, but I'm no computer scientist, that's for sure. Uh, but I will say that from what I have learned so far, the major challenges in using blockchain technology, uh, 
as it relates to scaling and as it relates to enterprise use, as it relates to day-to-day usefulness is, is scale um, and, and speed. And, and so blockchain is inherently slow, okay? And in the case of Bitcoin, um, and again, I don't want to get into too much detail, but it's on purpose. Bitcoin takes 10 minutes to reach consensus on a transaction. And so if you can imagine the idea of using Bitcoin necessarily at Starbucks to get your coffee, well, that just makes that line really, really long, doesn't it? If you're waiting for that transaction to go through. Now, I get it. You know, there's Lightning Network that's coming up. Lightning Network will uh, almost uh, very likely, almost certainly change the facts about Bitcoin in terms of its utility on a day-to-day basis. So I'm not arguing against that uh, by any means. I'm talking about what's true now, which is one trans, trans, uh, it's 10 minutes per transaction. Ethereum's faster. Now, Ethereum, as a general rule, is not um, really meant as a, a currency or storage of value the way Bitcoin was. It was primarily focused on smart contracts, but it has become... Uh, certainly a way of, of um, uh, you know, storage of value or currency de facto by the fact that people use it for that purpose as well. It's faster. Um, it's 15 seconds per transaction, which sounds a hell of a faster than 10 minutes. But where do we need to be in order to go to prime time with cryptocurrency? That's the question. Well, let me give you a gold standard which is Visa and MasterCard. Now, they do about 5,000 transactions per second. So let's think of that as the gold standard and think of it as what you really need to be hitting or getting close to if you want to go prime time and to create that same sort of ability with cryptocurrencies. Now, I'm not saying that you, again, can't get there with blockchain and side chains and all of this, but they... Uh, but as the world is right now, uh, we're not there. Uh, and they don't have to only use blockchains to get there either, right? There's more than one way to skin a cat. That's what we say in the non-technical world. And don't ask me why we say that, but that's what we say. It. There's more than one way to skin a cat. And one of those ways is via a project uh, called Hashgraph, which uses a, a type of what's known as a gossip protocol. In a hashcraft, the uh, way that it, it, it achieves consensus is completely different. And I'm not even going to try to explain because I will completely destroy it. But again, it's a gossip protocol um, with some very specific uh, methodology behind it uh, that was uh, invented by a guy by the name of Lehman Baird. And... Uh, What's really interesting to me about this uh, that I noticed a couple years ago that got my attention was that, first and foremost, it is lightning fast, right? I mean, this is an incredibly fast consensus mechanism. And it also has something, uh, a quality known as asynchronous Byzantine fault tolerance. Now, again, I don't pretend to be a computer scientist, but what I do know is that many computer scientists believe that asynchronous Byzantine fault tolerance uh, is the gold standard for security in distributed systems. Um, By the way, if you're curious more on what that whole 
terminology is and you want to dive deeper into it, uh, look up the Byzantine General's Dilemma. Um, look that up on Google and you'll start getting that. And put in Hashgraph too, because I think Mike Maloney did a really interesting documentary on on Hashgraph some time ago that's worth looking at. Um, now, uh, if all of this information, you know, speed and security and all that, if that's not exciting enough, uh, you know, you have to, as an investor, I think to myself, that's very exciting, but a white paper can only get you so far, right? And I know that from my old-fashioned investing days in the real estate world is it's not just about, you know, the deal or what it looks like on paper, but it's about the team. As an investor, I always look at the team. And when you look at Hashgraph, you see one of the most impressive teams in all of cryptocurrency uh, projects out there. I mean, this is a really, really impressive team with a tremendous track record, um, not only as scientists, but as business people and people who are able to navigate this world um, that's pretty complex right now when it comes to security, uh, securities, uh, laws, and, and regulations and all of that. So again, it, it is a pro- project that I'm extremely bullish on, and I will, um, I, I, I should concede, not concede, I should tell you up front that I am an investor in uh, Hedera Hashgraph um, in the presale. So, um, so you know, I don't want that to bias or make that make you think I'm I'm trying to shill this because I own it. I just believe in this stuff. And so a few um, months ago, a couple months ago, I had the chance to speak with one of the co-founders of uh, Hashgraph, who is now the CEO, Mance Harmon. And uh, this was before the presale. And so it's a little dated from talk about that presale, but everything else is completely relevant. And when we come back, you're going to hear a replay of that particular interview uh, don't miss it. This is a token. This is a project that you will see in circulation next year that you should really keep an eye on. Now, there isn't much more exciting than cryptocurrency, but there are old-fashioned ways of creating wealth outside of Wall Street that have been used by the wealthiest families in the world for generations. And that's what my other podcast is all about. It's called Wealth Formula Podcast. Now, if you've made a lot of money in crypto and don't know what to do next, this show might actually answer a lot of those questions, too. Again, it's Wealth Formula Podcast with me, Buck Joffrey. Welcome back, everyone. Today, it is a real pleasure for me to welcome my guest, Mance Harmon. He is one half of the dynamic duo, along with Lemon Beard, behind Swirl's Hashgraph, which recently introduced its plans for a public ledger that will be known as Hedera Hashgraph. Now, I've been following this project for a good year, year and a half, and I am convinced it will change everything in this distributed technology world. Mance, welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate your interest. Yeah, this is super exciting for me. Now, Mance, we're going to start out a little broad because not everybody listening is a super pro, you know, distributed ledger crypto person. So first, let's just start out with you. I mean, what were you and uh, Lehman Baird doing uh, before Satoshi Nakamoto and and all of this Bitcoin nonsense, <laughs> and I, I say yes. that tongue in cheek, of course. But how, how did you get how did you get together, and how did you go on this journey? 
Yeah, well, the interesting thing is that Lehman and I have been working together literally for 25 years. Uh We uh, met as young officers in the U.S. Air Force doing basic research in machine learning for the senior scientist for machine intelligence in, in the Air Force. And so our background originally started just in basic research, always been really high tech, machine learning before machine learning was cool. Yeah. Sort of sort of thing. Right. We then taught computer science at the academy. Uh, I was a course director for cybersecurity, managed a massive software program for the Missile Defense Agency. Uh, basically, it was a war game simulator that allows the U.S. government and its allies to figure out how to protect its citizens from incoming ballistic missiles, <laughs> you know, yeah. which is of interest today. Right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, decided we wanted to be entrepreneurs. And so I left the military and we started our first company in the field of identity and sold that to a Fortune 500. I became the senior exec for product security in that organization. We decided let's do it again. So we started our second company and sold that to private equity six and a half years later. Lehman then decided he had an interest in this space, not necessarily Bitcoin, but this notion of changing the way the internet works and from from being sort of centralized where we're all using the same server run by the same organization you know amazon is running its servers facebook runs its servers google runs its servers and we all consume services from those organizations instead of that model he wanted to be able to eliminate the need for the central uh, organization, but have the same capability. And there's some fundamental reasons for that. But he started this in 2012, this idea in 2012 of trying to achieve that vision. And I went to work for another identity company, Ping Identity, as the head of labs and architecture. In 2015, he had this major breakthrough. And of course, today, that is what we call the hash graph. Yep. Yep. <clears throat> we decided to commercialize it. I mean, the market timing was perfect for his innovation and uh, Ping made the first investment to kick things off. And, uh, you know, here we are now three years later and we, uh, we, we're going to market with Hedera, which is this public network built on Hashgraph technology. But so we've been working together a long time, yeah, always yeah. deep tech. Now when it was Lehman, when he, when he got interested in this, was he actually, was he thinking about this before before Bitcoin and the Nakamoto paper? Was he kind of was this already on his mind? No, I wouldn't say he was thinking about it before the Nakamoto paper. He really took serious interest in in 2012. That's when he started mm-hmm. actually spending a lot of hours trying sure. to find a a solution to the problem. However, having said that, Bitcoin was never really the answer, and yeah. he knew that yeah. from the very <clears throat> beginning. And so it, it's not the case that Bitcoin or blockchain as a technology has influenced uh, what he's created in Hashgraph. They look entirely different yep. from each other. Yep. And so, so he, of course, knew what was going on in the market, but it wasn't it wasn't something that influenced where he started or where we ended up got it so let's you know for for those in the audience who are not as versed again just in general 
on this idea of distributed ledger technology. Now, Lehman, you're talking to doctors, lawyers, software engineers, you know, people who are, well, maybe the software engineers are a little bit more uh, uh, smarter than the rest of us. But for those who have really not engaged with this technology yet, in your words, how do you describe the significance just in general of how distributed ledger technology is going to change the world? Yeah. Well, look, I think there's a really simple way of describing this that everyone appreciates. And, and that is fundamentally, this is a new type of database. Historically, you have a database run by an organization and maybe there are multiple copies of that same database and they're all being used by lots of people at the same time. It's the same data in each copy. And sometimes two different people will write to the same location in the database on two different computers. And that's what we call a write conflict. And we have to come to agreement about which one of those writes happened first so that all the databases in this cluster is what it would be called, stay in sync. They can stay in sync. All the write transactions have to happen in the same order for, for them all to stay in sync. What's different here about what we're doing today is that Historically, one company has run that cluster of databases. Amazon has its cluster of databases. They have complete control over all of those databases. And they would never consider giving Google a copy or one of those, one of those database instances to mm -hmm. run on behalf of Amazon. They wouldn't let Google run one of their databases. Yeah. Because Google maybe could do bad things. You know, they could change the order of information or prevent the network from 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 converging so the databases all stay in sync or other other attacks. What was demonstrated for the first time with Bitcoin in the most general sense is a capability where we can in fact give away instances of this shared database to different people outside of our organization. And in fact, we may not even know who they are. So we can have a lot of different parties all running a local copy of a database. It's a, it's a replicated database. It's the same database that we're all running. And we can come to an agreement on the order mm -hmm. of transactions so that all of these databases will stay in sync and we can do it securely. And that's the most important piece. We can do this securely in a way that I know that some person running a copy of the database anonymously, unknown to me, their identity or who they are, they can't change the order of transactions or do things that cause right. cause problems for me. That's fundamentally yeah. the innovation here. And, and you're effectively, from the standpoint of enterprise, uh, you know, any kind of Facebook or Uber or whatever, you are in the process eliminating the middleman, right? I mean, you are making it so that there's a direct inter direct interaction between participants rather than requiring that there be a centralized, um, you know, big brother sort of figure that can maybe sell your data, can look at what you're doing and control everything. Is that effectively? That, that's yeah. exactly right. right. You right. know, and a good way of describing this uh, that you can just sort of appreciate immediately is let's pretend that we have a, a game, a multiplayer game. And, you know, a dozen of my friends and I are all online playing this multiplayer game. Well, normally there's a central database that we're all connecting to 
And when I make a move in my environment, that database makes it so that everybody else can see the changes I've made. And, and that central organization enforces the rules so that we can't cheat in, uh, in the game. What we're doing here is putting that cop a copy of that database that describes our environment in total on the computer of each one of the players, but then the players communicate directly with one another instead of going through that central server. And the math just ensures that I can't cheat. Right. And that the databases stay in sync. It's still the same game. Yep. It still looks and feels the same to those that are using the game, but there's no central server that's serving as the referee. We've yeah. eliminated the need for central servers. Yeah. Or banks, right? <laughs> or banks. <laughs> Maybe so. Right, Maybe right. So, um, so let's, let's talk. Let's get into a little bit more specifics here. Now we kind of have a broad idea of it. This whole distributed ledger technology is. So this paper that we're talking about came out, uh, Nakamoto, was it 2009 or something? So the paper came out in 2008 and the 2000. code base in 2009. Right. Yeah. And this this ultimately led to uh, Bitcoin and uh, blockchain, which is one type of distributed ledger technology. And fundamentally, from there, for the most part, this world has grown on different types of blockchain technology. Now, where you guys come in is where you say, well, there are some fundamental flaws or weaknesses in this idea of blockchain as the type of distributed ledger that can really scale into something that's going to change the world. What are those limitations? Yeah, well, the first limitation is even described in the name. It's a chain. So each uh, member in the community has a local copy of this chain of blocks of transactions. And remember, this is a database system fundamentally. And so when we make changes to the database, those are the transactions and they have to go to everybody. And if you have a chain of blocks of transactions, then the community can only decide on what block goes on top of the chain one block at a time. In our case, we don't have a chain. We have something that is described in you know the world of math as a graph. But effectively, what that means is that each member of the community, when they have a transaction, a change to the database, they can just submit that transaction at will to the, the network. And we weave all those transactions together in this graph. And we're basically processing all that information in parallel instead of serially in a chain. And so the architecture of blockchain is self-limiting in that you can only process in serial, you know, one at a time, as opposed to processing everything in parallel, that, like what we do in Hashgraph. And so there's a huge performance difference uh, because of this. Performance in terms of the time it takes for transactions in terms of energy consumption, right? If you're doing, in the case of Bitcoin, it's these, in order to process these things, there are these massive uh, computational things that happen with computers. But I heard something like uh, it, it, it takes uh, the entire energy of Ireland's consumption to, to operate Bitcoin. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. You're right. Uh, some, something on that order. That's certainly true. So correct, it takes an enormous amount of energy and the performance is, is terrible. And, and what I mean by that is this, 
if we have a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, globally, Bitcoin can handle five transactions per second. So if Alice wants to pay Bob a coin, that is a transaction, right? And so five transactions per second is peanuts compared to what's required. What we're able to do with Hashgraph, because we're doing this in parallel and our mechanism is fundamentally different than, than Bitcoin, we can do hundreds of thousands of transactions per second. And there's no need to burn all of that electricity. Uh, we, we work fundamentally different uh, than Bitcoin and, and the mining rigs that some of your listeners probably have heard about. There's no need for these expensive computers just to solve a hard crypto puzzle to, to make the system work. We've eliminated that requirement entirely. So it's really the difference between a calculator and what you can do with a calculator in terms of applications and a computer. And you know the the number of applications, a range of applications that you can perform on a computer. It's that level of leap from where we started with Bitcoin to where we now are with Hashgraph. So you knew, you mentioned with with Bitcoin, you've got about uh, I think uh, would you say about ten transactions per second, and then I think Ethereum um, from an application standpoint uh, is about twenty five applica- uh, uh, transaction per second. You guys did some testing. And it was pretty spectacular. I, I was watching the, at home, I was watching your presentation on Hedera. Can you t- talk to us a little bit sure. about the performance that you guys were seeing? And then is there, you may also mention if there's anything that even comes close to this out there. Yeah, yeah. Well, so what we presented on stage, we had a we had a, an event in New York City back in early March where we introduced the world for the first time to Hedera as an organization to build this public platform. Um, And what we announced from stage were performance results on a global network, eight data centers uh, in all the major continents where we were able to achieve 100,000 transactions per second with something uh, called consensus latency of 3.4 seconds. Consensus latency is just the amount of time it takes for the transactions to become final. So for example, in, in the world of um, you know, credit cards, when you swipe your card at the point of sale system, uh, the terms of service by the card hold, uh, issuers is that it, you have to get an answer back on whether that card is, is good, you can use it, in seven seconds or less. Right. And Visa, as a network, <laughs> surges to about 57, 58,000 transactions per second. On average, it's about 2,000 transactions per second. We were able to achieve better than Visa performance at scale, you know, 100,000 transactions per second sustained, not surge, with three seconds of consensus latency. In other words, you could use this as a, as a Visa equivalent. And... Um, and, and that's where we're starting. So, yeah, right. Uh, and how does that compare to some of the other projects? I mean, we do have, you know, some other things like, you know, EOS and, you know, some of these sure. other projects that are coming up. Are they, I mean, they've got, I mean, no, they're better, but I don't know if they're getting Yeah, well, yet. no, they, they're significantly better than right. the first generation blockchain systems like what's being used by Bitcoin and first generation uh, Ethereum. The, the problem is that, these platforms haven't published a lot of results yet. We're still fairly early, but what I can share with you is that the best 
performance I've seen uh, is about seven or eight thousand transactions per second, and maybe they'll yeah. do better. Maybe it'll be ten thousand yeah. transactions per second. I don't know, but there is um, there's this trade-off between the level of security that you have and the performance that you can achieve. Historically, there's been this trade-off. If you want better security, then you have to reduce performance. Or if you want better performance, you have to reduce security. And in our case, what we've been able to achieve uniquely in the market is the best security that one can achieve at the algorithm level, at the hash graph level. Theoretically possible. You can't do any better. And at the same time, the best performance. And and that is unique. Um, and I haven't seen anybody yeah. else in the market yeah. do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the applications that with Hashgraph, um, with with Hedera maybe in particular, when people are starting to, to take this? I know we've got some projects I've seen already. There's uh, uh, Satori, um, yep. you know, some of these other ones. Can you talk about some of the applications that are out there that may not have been possible with the blockchain uh, platforms that are now possible yeah. potentially with with uh, Hedera. Yeah. Well, I want to. I want to. I think the first killer application is going to be the ability to have micropayments natively on the graph. Everybody understands, in in, in my industry anyway, everybody understands the value of micro uh, payments. And let me just say explicitly what I mean with a micropayment. I'm not talking necessarily about making a payment of 10 cents. Uh, you know, Alice wants to pay Bob 10 cents. That maybe is a small payment. A micropayment is Alice paying Bob a thousandth of a penny, right? There haven't been mechanisms or infrastructure in place that makes it possible for Alice to pay Bob a thousandth of a penny without paying fees that are way beyond a thousandth of a penny. So practically, you can do this hypothetically, but the fees associated, uh, you know, will be measured in pennies or dimes or or dollars. And so you would just never you would never pay a thousandth of a penny. But when we can achieve that, and we will achieve that with Hashgraph, entirely new business models open up. So, for example, every January, uh, if you use the internet at all, you go to Wikipedia. You get that notice from the Wikimedia Foundation asking you to donate three dollars to the to the foundation to support right. Wikimedia. Right. Well, if my web browser has a a cryptocurrency wallet embedded in it with some coin in the wallet, when I am browsing wiki articles, for each article I read, I could pay a thousandth of a penny. Right. And I would never see it. It would be frictionless. And the <clears throat> Wikimedia Foundation has a sustainable revenue model that probably pays them more than they're making today. Yeah. This is just one example. Right. And right. so I think entirely new business models will open up with micropayments. I think IoT, the Internet of Things, as a category, will not reach its potential uh, without this technology. And you know what I envision is a world in which things are engaging other things to perform services for each other and uh, and they make payment for those services using the cryptocurrency and to make it very practical, a, a, a specific example maybe is that 
I have my light bulbs that are things in this, you know, the world of Internet mm-hmm. of Things. Mm-hmm. And when a light bulb burns out, uh, it makes it possible for Amazon and Walmart and any other retail, maybe Target, any other retailer that I've given permission to, to discover the fact that my light bulb has burnt out and then to bid on the opportunity to replace those light bulbs and then have the the winner of that bid, this marketplace, automatically ship me the replacement light bulbs. Well, what? this all requires this infrastructure that we're now building. And, and is it that, is it this, in, in particular, the, the value of Hedera or Hashgraph in general, there as opposed to the other blockchain, it's the speed, it's the performance that allows that those types of things to happen, correct? For- it's it's two things. You're right. The speed is absolutely critical. The ability to make payments um, on chain or on graph in this case, so, so that they're securely achieved, is important. But then finally, there's this there's this property that we haven't talked about that's called fairness. It just means that there's no opportunity for one party to to influence the order of transactions, but this fairness property is important for markets. And that's what I'm describing here. It becomes possible to have markets built on top of the Hedera platform that are supported by the cryptocurrency and the smart contracts and the performance that makes it possible for things to engage other things and engage in commerce. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, even think about some of these uh, hedge funds that the whole business model is to just you know scoot in front of the the trade they already know is going through and make the trade ahead of time and then <laughs> so, right, so right, this is right. one of those things so um now let's go back to this idea you know hashgraph has gotten a lot of press in the last year and whenever you see it on forbes or whatever they always describe it as the bitcoin killer you know um you know it, it, it and i don't think that that's really the idea here because obviously there's also I mean, you guys are really into applications as well. I mean, uh, certainly currency as well. But how do you see this? How do you see, um, w- w- I guess, being as diplomatic as possible? To sure. do, how does how do you and and Lehman really see this technology affecting blockchain in general? There's a lot. I mean, yeah. most of this world is built on the blockchain. Is yeah. this something that replaces? Is this something that coexists? How do you see this happening? In the- yeah, well, several thoughts there. Um, when it comes to Bitcoin in particular, right? There's enormous momentum behind Bitcoin. You, you know, major banks are now talking about opening trading desks for Bitcoin. There will be ETFs that will hit the market. Institutional money will flow into cryptocurrencies generally, but they're going to start with the most prominent, which of course today is Bitcoin. And right. so Bitcoin. Who knows what's going to happen in the long term with Bitcoin, but I suspect in the short term, Bitcoin is is here for a while. And when the institutional money hits, I would expect that to have a you know potentially a dramatic effect on the value of Bitcoin as as uh, you know as a particular instrument. Now, when we're talking about technology, that's a different issue, right? Right. Um, when we're comparing Hashgraph as an algorithm to blockchain as an algorithm or a piece of technology, absolutely, I believe blockchain will diminish and eventually fade away. And and Hashgraph and maybe other approaches as well will 
significantly gain market share and uh, will be the next generation. That's not to say that any given company or platform built on blockchain will die. It, if there's a way for them to migrate from sort of first generation blockchain to a new technology that doesn't have the uh, you know the, the performance and security constraints, you know the limitations of blockchain, then maybe they'll be able to navigate those waters. But but in terms purely of the technology, uh, blockchain will diminish and, and Hashgraph yeah. will increase. So this is this is uh, something just so the listeners don't, and tell me if I'm correct in this. But the way I've seen Bitcoin is listen. I'll, at the end of the day. Bitcoin is a storage of value. That's all its real purpose is. It's not something that you build applications on. So to me, if you're really going to call Hashgraph a killer of anything, it's probably an Ethereum killer uh, or, you know, because pretty much every application up to today has been built on uh, Ethereum because that's been, you know, the one that has been around the longest for this purpose. So Hashgraph sort of gets in that game along with, you know, some of these other second generation uh, blockchains like like EOS and, and, and NEO and that sort of thing. So this may be sort of the third generation of that. Is that is that a fair assessment of kind of what you're thinking? It's it's more on the application side or maybe you also see it as in the long term also being a storage of value as well. Um, we certainly didn't start with that in mind. Right. We, we started with a vision of making it possible for uh, people to carve out a piece of cyberspace and within that piece of cyberspace play games together and to work together with business apps and to engage in commerce with, for goods and services without the need to, to compromise their data or privacy to a central organization. That was the vision. It's still the vision. And what that necessarily means is that we're building a platform that can support distributed applications. And, uh, you know, if it's the case that the cryptocurrency associated with this platform at some point becomes a store of value, uh, you, you know, maybe that will happen. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah. that's not uh, that's not a driving motivation. It's not even something we really think about. Sure. So let's talk about this in terms of uh, Hashgraph in particular. Right now, there's two platforms, right? One is the private one, uh, and then there's the new public ledger. So, and that w will issue the Hedera token. That's effectively sort of the equivalent of what Ethereum does. Now, can you talk a little bit about the difference, the purpose of having a private and a public ledger, and ultimately how that will affect you know, will these be competing with one another? I mean, how, how does how do you see all these playing out? Yeah, so we started with Swirls, as you'd mentioned, and Swirls as a company was and continues to be focused on permissioned networks. The distinction here is when you have the network, there are nodes in the network, they, each node has a copy of the database, and they're voting on the order of transactions. And the question is, can anybody just download the software and put it on their computer and participate as, in the node, as a node in the network? Or do they need to get permission from some central organization, some central governing body to participate as a node in the network? In that case, it's called a private network. Uh, and and the, you know, the best examples 
of this are maybe a group of banks are getting together to create their private permission right. network for distributed consensus. It, and we started there, we built enterprise grade software for enterprise applications. We've always viewed what we're doing as being the most secure, the most performance solution in the network. So the bank grade solution, in other words, or enterprise grade solution. And we, we didn't even think about the public network until we had gotten some market validation of what we were doing. And, uh, and so we waited. We actually waited a couple of years before really beginning to, to pursue the public network. The public network, of course, is Hedera. And we spun Hedera out of Swirls last fall, operated in stealth until March of this year, and introduced the world to Hedera. Hedera is chartered with taking the Hashgraph algorithm, the same technology we built for the enterprises as the base layer, and then adding some services on top to create this public network. And those services are the <clears throat> cryptocurrency service, smart contracts, and we've taken the Ethereum virtual machine that runs Solidity scripts and put that directly on top of Hashgraph, our, our platform. So we got backward compatibility for the world of Solidity scripts and then distributed file storage. And then that's needed for a variety of reasons as well. But if you're building, if you're an application developer, building a an application and you want it to run on this public network you can just do so without license it's not uh, it's not a there's no license required like maybe there would be in a permission network so they're at different markets the applications themselves in some cases they overlap you could build an application either on a public network or on a private or permission network but often it's the case that it's pretty clear whether you want to use one or the other. I mean, a public network is public in more than just anybody can run a node. It's that data is replicated on hundreds, if not thousands of nodes all around the world. And you don't know who are running those nodes. Right. And so yeah. it's not the case that you would put, you know, PII or privacy information that's observable in the public network, you would do just the opposite. You would encrypt it or hide it or not use a public network at all. You would put that kind of information in a permission network, so as an example. If, so if banks were wanting to use the technology, they would use, and, and I'm just trying to understand this a little bit more, they would they would probably go to Swirls and license out, you know, a private, uh, the private version, as opposed to going to the public ledger. And then the public ledger would be more for, say, you know, somebody who's trying to come up with a replacement for Uber or for, you know, or, or is that is that kind of what you're thinking? I think that's pretty close. Yeah. I think that's pretty close. So the, the credit union industry in North America was Swirl's first enterprise customer. And, and the reason I mention them is that they have a range of use cases that they are pursuing that are only in the permission network, the private network. But then at the same time, uh, they've announced that they are going to use the public network for cross-border payments and remittances, right? So uh, in their case, they have a set of use cases that are appropriate for permissioned and they won't use in the public world. And, and then, of course, with the cryptocurrency, there's a whole range of use cases that they care about that they can't achieve with the permissioned network or they don't want to use a permission network to achieve. And so... Uh, but yes, the public, you know, the consumer facing applications like the creation of a distributed Uber or 
uh, you know, a distributed Airbnb or uh, games, you yeah. know, a distributed multiplayer game. They're, you know, right. different use cases for different. Yeah, that's making that that's starting. I mean, and sorry to belabor the point, but that's been one of the confusing things for me is trying to understand that. But the the private would be more like you already know who you want to communicate with, and you already and you're just making that more efficient. And then the public ledger would be more outward facing. You don't. There's new people coming in all the time, and so that's where you would use a public because now you don't know who all the users are, right? <laughs> you don't know who all the no. That's exactly right. right. Okay. Um, this this network uh, is made up of nodes that you know are anonymous, right? Pretty much right. To, to each other, mutually anonymous, and so uh, you'll end up using different networks for the different things. If we talk about a game, just to you know, thirty seconds here. Sure. With the multiplayer game, if you have ten guys or, or guys and girls, you know running a game where they are um, playing in this closed environment with each other, having a network of 10 computers is going to be way faster, far more performant than a public network or a large permission network. But you may end up having pockets of these little small networks, thousands of them scattered around the globe, where they're all permissioned networks of 10 or 12 members. But then they use the public network for keeping track of the game resources across the entire planet. And so mm. there is a fixed number of coins, for example, that all of the subnetworks are competing for. It's scarcity, you know, scarce resources are tracked and maintained in a public network where the permission network uh, are used for local play of, of the games themselves. Got it, got it. Let's uh, want to talk uh, briefly about this. There's a little bit of a uh, controversy, if you will, in this whole uh, uh, cryptocurrency world. Uh, the one thing that I hear people um, talk about is the idea that that Hedera, in particular, Hashgraph, is patented. It's and, and whereas most of cryptocurrency is open source, meaning the code can be manipulated. Somebody can take that code, kind of change it a little bit, and fork off and create their own project, their own coin. For example, you have Ethereum to Ethereum Classic, that kind of thing. You can't do that with Hashgraph because of the patent. So some of the people who are purists in the space sure. who are yep. who you know believe in that that's almost attacking the entire notion of decentralization, the notion of you know this whole ethos of cryptocurrency. How do you how do you address that? And you know. I'm sure you guys yeah. have thought about this quite a bit, and I'd love to get your your take. Sure, sure. No, well, look, this this is one of the very first things that we thought about. Right. <laughs> Years ago, right, a lot of thought has gone into this. And what we recognize just by observation is that this market, if we think about open source, historically open source platforms – have uh, have have served the community well in that the community members will contribute their best ideas to a common baseline, and the community as a community had an interest in ensuring that that baseline stays a common baseline. When you combine that, this open source notion, with a cryptocurrency, the incentive structures are changed in subtle ways that now don't necessarily encourage, uh, encourage the members of the community to 
maintain a common baseline. In fact, it's just the opposite mm -hmm. in many cases. <clears throat> what we see is a proliferation of hard forks uh, where the new baseline, the new competing platform doesn't add a lot of value over the old competing platform. It's just there because some guys maybe are going to make a gazillion dollars from creating a new cryptocurrency right. off the old right. platform. So, the but and that's okay, except in the case where mainstream uh, business managers who are considering spending a lot of money to build an enterprise application on top of one of these public platforms don't do it because of the risks associated with the hard fork. So if I'm a business manager, I'm considering spending $2 million on an enterprise application on top of one of the major public platforms. The one thing I know, and probably everybody in the community knows, is that public platform is highly likely to split into a competing platform and associated cryptocurrency. That represents risk to me as a business manager, and it prevents mm -hmm. me from pulling the trigger on that expenditure in many cases. And so what we want is to both maintain the best aspects of open source with the stability that is needed to cause mainstream adoption of, of the platform. And what that means necessarily in our case is that we're maintaining open innovation. There's no license that's required to use the software. It's just the same as Ethereum or EOS or anybody else that is going to be in the market. If you want to use the platform, you use it and you pay for its use using the platform token. No, no different there. So it's open innovation. We also will have transparency in the code base. With version one, we will release the software for the world to see. They'll be able to read every line of code. If they want to compile it and compare it to the Node software that they download to know that we're not you know, we're being dishonest anyway, they'll be able to do that. So full transparency. <clears throat> but what we are doing is using the patent as a governance tool in a defensive way to make a promise to the market that we will not let our platform split or fork into a competing platform and associated cryptocurrency. In other words, we're guaranteeing stability to the mainstream market that others can't. In fact, this is new in the industry. We're bringing in an option to the developer community that didn't previously exist. Yeah. So what have you noticed enterprise level organizations resonating with this? Has, has it been received the way that you thought it would? Yeah. In fact, it's been more, it's been well received beyond what I thought it would. Yeah. Um, there are those developers that will <clears throat> never develop on top of us because we won't allow the platform to fork. And I can sympathize and appreciate their position, right? Some right. developers, if they don't like the direction that we're taking the platform in terms of features, they want the ability to fork it and go make their own changes to the platform. And, and if that's their concern, then they shouldn't use us. They yeah. should use you know any one of the other dozens of platforms out there. <clears throat> but they're also is a large number of developers that are never going to make changes to the platform itself. All they want to know is that that platform is going to be stable and they trust the organization that's running it and that um, they, you know, they can build their enterprise app without fear of the instability of, of a hard fork. Just uh, quickly, I want to, I know we're, we're running a little, I don't want to take too much of your time, but can you tell us a little bit about the council? 
the, the entire Hedera Council you developed and the purpose of that and what that's all about? Sure, sure. Well, so when thinking about what the governing body should look like for this public network, what we wanted was a governance body that represents all constituencies. We wanted the most inclusive, decentralized governing body of any of the public platforms. And so what we did was create a council of 39 members. We're in the process of creating this council now. We have commitments from more than half of the 39. And these are the largest organizations in the world by market cap and by brand equity. These are the most trusted brands in the market today. It's not a bunch of banks. There are a few banks, but there are 18 sectors of business that are represented by this council. And again, it's not centralized in one geography. It's it's representing all the major markets around the globe. We have membership today from Australia, from Asia, from, of course, the United States, from Europe, from India. We are expecting in the short term to pick up members from the Middle East, from Africa, and from South America. And so by design, this organization is going to have oversight of, of Hedera, the, the, the organization, at, at the subcommittee level. For example, there will be a finance committee, and we will pull expertise from the world's best economists, you know, where it exists in our, in our council, to participate on this finance committee that helps us establish pricing for the API calls, the rates that we pay to the nodes in the network. There will be expertise from the tech giants in our product roadmap from a technical perspective. Mm -hmm. There will be expertise in legal and regulatory uh, from some of the world's largest global law firms, right? This is designed to be uh, unique in the market. I've not seen anything else like it. All the other platforms, for example, maybe the decisions that are being made are, are being made by core developers or with influence from the miners. Maybe there's a foundation of a half dozen members. Maybe there's a single company with five or six owners of that company. We believe this is the most decentralized, uh, inclusive uh, governing body of any of the public platforms. Got it. So um, how is this all rolling out? What's the timeline, the map here in terms of when does Hedera go live? Uh, when will we start seeing... Uh, when does this become reality? Yeah, well, so we're we're feature complete this month for version one, and we already have our first beta customers lined up to begin developing code on our test networks uh, by the end of this month, and so it's uh, it's moving along nicely. The expectation is that we will harden the platform through the summer, and we will gradually open it up to more and more beta customer partners. We will also have hackathons around the globe. And, and for those developers that come to the hackathons, they will get access to this public network at the hackathons and, and then subsequently. And then later in the year, in fall, we will get to a point where we, we feel we're ready for general availability. Version 1 is expected by the end of the year. Got it. So would that be... 
So right now there's an investing round of uh, pre-sale. I know there's not going to be an ICO. Is that largely institutional money or is there also accredited investors uh, going to get an opportunity for this? How's that going to work? Yeah, as of today, we are in an institutional round. And uh, I expect that to close in, in the near future. And then we do expect to have a, an accredited crowd sale, if you will, mm-hmm. with much lower caps, men's, men's and max, much lower men's and max uh, on the investment uh, range. Sure. And I would expect that to happen by the end of summer. In addition to that, we are coming out with a program that makes it possible for the developer community to basically help us test the network. We will give the developers that register with us a set of tools that they then use to help us harden the platform and and test the network. And in exchange for their services, we will give them tokens, platform tokens. Got it. So So we expect all that to happen in in the summertime. So sometime in Q4, we should expect there is people who own Hedera tokens. Is that Yes, right. yeah. I would say that's true. That yep. sounds great. Well, um, this has been absolutely fascinating, and I want to say thank you very much for your time today. Where can we go to learn more about Hashgraph and what you guys are doing? So Hashgraph.com or HederaHashgraph.com, they both resolve to the same website. You can read an awful lot about us there. There is a white paper, of course, that describes all of this in a lot more detail. And uh, for those that are on Telegram, we have a Telegram channel. I don't know how many people are on it today. You know, 35,000. Yeah, like 35,000. Like I'm that. on there. So it's about 35,000. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, you know, there are a lot of people yeah. there. Um, but, but for the meat of, of what we're doing, Hashgraph.com, we have a Medium channel as well for, for official announcements and that sort of thing. And you can register to yeah. receive a, a newsletter uh, on Hashgraph.com as well. Fantastic. Thanks again, Mance. We'll be right back. Want to buy Bitcoin with your IRA? Don't waste your time on expensive IRA custodians. A strategy called a QRP is as easy as writing a check. Find out how. Text 44222 and type QRP book. That's one word. And get a free book that explains everything. Again, that's 44222 QRP book. One word. It's the easiest way to make Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies part of your retirement. Welcome back to the show, everyone. And it is now time for the question and answer component of Consensus Network. This is Buck Joffrey. And um, by the way, I want to make sure that you start really, you know, contributing and interacting with the show. That's the whole point here. We're trying to learn together, right? So there's no no such thing as a dumb question, all right? There's no such thing as a dumb question because we're all learning here. There's different levels of sophistication. I try to define things as much as I can along the way. Um, and I think uh, I think for the most part, I'm... I'm getting that you're that you're getting it but if i'm not ask the questions okay so the way you do that is you go to consensusnetwork.io and you can record a question or you can fill out a form and do that or you can email me and you just in you email info at consensusnetwork.io now just a couple of questions today um the first one is uh, from Chris. He says, hi, my name is Chris and I've just started trading cryptocurrency. 
I have a question. I guess it's a pretty wide one, but how do I know when to sell my tokens? I know some coins uh, are you're meant to hold, and some you can buy in the morning and sell after dinner. What do you think? Well, um, I think uh, I think the question is is uh, I mean it's it you can do whatever you want is the answer. Um, my um, you know, it depends if you are a trader or if you are an investor. I've always considered uh, those things to be different, right? A trader, a lot of times, and, and, and you know, we'll have a technical uh, trader on the show um, in the near future. They're not really looking at necessarily the macro picture. They're not looking at, you know, what's going on in, in the ecosystem, what's going on in the news, um, or the the rest of the economy. They're looking at charts, okay? And if you are a, a good at that, um, and then, then by all means, um, I think be a trader. Uh, I will say that people who are really good traders and who make money doing it, they spend a lot of time on this stuff. So I don't really feel like it's something that everybody should necessarily try to do. I think it's a very quick way to lose money if you try. Um, I am not a good trader. I'm a terrible trader. Unfortunately, I've tried it. Um, I can't say I've really even went into the, uh, you know, to the, to, to the charts. I just thought it, you know, a, a few years ago, I thought I'd just try to buy things and sell them quick and try to get a quick, uh, quick hit. But, but there, that has a couple of problems with it. One is that, uh, one is that a lot of times you guess wrong and you don't end up making money. You end up losing money. Uh, the other problem is that when you do those kinds of quick trades, you end up paying taxes on those trades um, at an ordinary income level. In other words, uh, the they are taxed at or what are called in the U.S. at least in short-term capital gains, which is basically tax like the rest of your income. You know, and if you're in California, that means like half your money's going away. Um, and so what's the point, right? So I, I'm not a big, I'm not big as a trader. I mean, I listen to traders and what they have to say, cause I find it intriguing and they, most of the time they just make me nervous. But what I try to do is try to keep the macro, um, picture, the big picture in mind. I'm not really concerned about what happens today or tomorrow. Um, what I am curious, uh, or what I am concerned about is what happens to uh, the price of something I own three to five years from now. Now, my background is primarily as a real estate investor. Uh, obviously, I'm, I'm a physician, but my investing is has always been um, primarily focused in the real estate space. And so, in real estate, our focus tends to be cash flow. But you know, on the appreciation side, what we're looking at what happens over the course of you know at least three years, like three to five years, if you're not a flipper. Uh, flippers are like traders. So so the question that comes to my mind when I buy a token is, is do I anticipate that what I'm buying now could be uh, of much greater value in the next three to five years than, um, than it is today? Because ultimately, that's all I really care about, right? I, mean, I don't, I don't want to get caught up with trades. I want to look at the big picture, and say I'm sitting on something. Um, 
You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to go out and have it sitting on exchanges, unsafe. It's on cold storage. It's bought. It's done. That's it. So hopefully that answers your question. But again, bottom line is I'm not a trader. I think if you're buying a token, you should plan on holding it um, for a while. And, 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 you know, you should buy it because you believe in the project and hold it for a while. So, um, but again, I'm, I'm not giving you financial advice either. I have to keep telling you that as well. Okay. The second question here, uh, for, uh, no, no, no name here. Uh, but that's okay. It's uh, hey Buck, I've recently noticed that ICOs don't yield the same benefit as it used to anymore. In fact, some of them are worth much less than their ICO value. How do you know which ICO is worth investing in? Okay, so, all right, so what is an ICO in the first place? So an ICO is an initial coin offering. So what was happening in the last few years was... Um, a lot of projects were just, you know, they were creating these tokens out of thin air. Um, not all of them. Some of them were legitimate for sure. And they would do um, the equivalent of an, an initial uh, stock offering, an initial public offering in, in the stock market, except it was with these tokens, right? And then the tokens would just drive up massively on speculation. And um, people got... You know, people made a lot of money doing that. Uh, the problem is a lot of the ICOs that were out there were um, were completely, you know, they were worthless. And so it was just people buying tokens just because. They had no idea what the project was. They had no idea who the people were behind it. And so they got involved and they got burned. Now, the um, SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission in the U.S., um, has really clamped down on these types of things. And so you you don't see a whole lot of it anymore. And it's because of the SEC and it's also because we're in a um we're we're in what you would characterize as a um as a bad market, right? We're not in a bull market right now. We're in a bear market and so in a bear market, all those speculators kind of tend to go away. The people who weren't really looking at this seriously, I mean, they're they're not they're seeing that they're not making money. It's the ICOs. There's no sense in putting an ICO out there if it's people aren't going to invest in it either. So you're seeing some of that. You're seeing a lot of regulation. So even if there are ICOs, typically um, they're not. Uh, American investors are rarely, if ever, allowed to participate. Um, Instead, what you're seeing more of is pre-sales, and pre-sales are uh, pre-sales are being done um, on a number of different projects. Where I think the people who are interested in um, in presenting a new token to uh, the cryptocurrency ecosystem are trying to do it in a, in a way that is responsible and that respects the regulatory uh, structure of the United States. So, I mean, we, we talked today with, Man, you know, with Mans Harmon, this interview, you know, Hedera Hashcraft, they did a pre-sale. It was um, open only to um, Americans. It was only open to accredited investors. And again, this goes back to laws that are dating back from the Great Depression that were supposed to protect, you know, 
people from themselves from investing in wildly. And, and you know, the ICO phenomena and the way people lost money there is probably a pretty good reason why those laws exist. But anyway, these pre-sales, uh, what they do before you can participate, you have to prove that you are what's called an accredited investor. An accredited investor is basically somebody who um, you don't have to apply for it. In the U.S., what it means is you have uh, you make $200,000 per year um, or $300,000 per year if you're filing jointly, or you have a net worth of a million dollars outside of your personal residence. Now, it's not really fair, frankly, to, to most people but it's the law, and so that's what's happening um, in the U.S. right now is that serious projects, if people want to offer it to American investors, it has to be limited uh, to accredited investors. And they also go through these you know, rigorous know-your-customer type things as well to make sure that you know, there's no nefarious stuff going on. Um, you know, so, so that's, that's the thing. So that's why, um, uh, that's why you don't see much of them. Now, how do you... The other part of the question was, how do you know which ICO is worth investing in? And the bigger question, I guess, is not just even ICO. It's which project you invest in. A pre-sale is inherently going to probably be a little bit more risky anyway because a lot of times those projects are not are still really, really early in development. Although, um, I mean, look at EOS, for example, which is which is a project that I really like that they their token um sale was way before their blockchain way before their blockchain developed um so um so but i think for me the biggest thing in these things is always to look at the team right you have to look at the team you have to look at the project and see if you know the, does the team have experience does the team um, look like they could carry something out, not just an idea, but do they have a track record of success in the past? Do they seem like they are, uh, you know, that they have they have integrity? Um, you know, do they have the credentials? All those things. I mean, again, if you look at the interview with um, uh, Mance uh, Harmon, uh, this, these, these are exactly the things that I liked about Hedera Hashgraph as a presale uh, investment. And so I think you have to approach every project like that. You have to ask yourself, what are, what's, what's the merits of the project and who's the team? So that's a long-winded answer. But uh, for better or worse, you're not going to see a lot more ICOs anyway because of the regulatory uh, issues that are going on in, in the U.S. And if you're an American, you know, unless you're doing it somehow illegally, um, which people are, by the way, um, then then it's just <laughs> you don't even really need to worry about it anymore. Anyway, um, that's the only questions I have today. Uh, I th- appreciate you guys sending those. Um, and I want to encourage people to continue to do so. So again, go to consensusnetwork.io and, um, you know, either leave a voice message or write something or uh, simply email me at info at consensusnetwork.io. And uh, also make sure you sign up for the newsletter because there's also sorts of stuff going on there. Catch the news, etc. Um, that's it for me this week. 
This is Buck Joffrey with the Consensus Network signing off.